chapter 2. And uh, before we go ahead and get started here, let's do the smart thing and uh, just have a quick word of prayer here before. Father God, once again, just good to be here this morning and excited to see what you have to say through your spirit through this lesson. We pray as always, Lord, you would teach and we would listen. And Lord, once again, we know there was a lot of uh, just uh, friends and family here from the church that weren't able to make it today due to power and other things. Just keep them safe. And once again, we just pray that your hand be upon just the restoration of that and those out there working on that as well, too. Thank you for the time just to meet here. We just pray that your spirit would teach and guide. In your name, amen. Luke chapter 2, very famous chapter here in the book of Luke, probably the most famous chapter in the book of Luke. Anytime there's probably ever been a Christmas message given, I came out of Luke chapter 2. I'm not one to give titles to messages, but if I gave a, a title to this message, it'd probably be Christmas in July because this is the Christmas story. Here, now this is what's kind of interesting. You probably have heard this from, once again, numerous times you've heard the Christmas message presented during church, etc. Or if you've ever watched the Charlie Brown Christmas special, Linus should be teaching this morning. Because this is that passage right here, a very famous passage. Now, I have taught over Luke chapter 2 many, many times. But I've never got a chance to teach over Luke chapter 2 away from the idea of Christmas. Because any time I teach through Luke chapter 2, it's always with the background of the Christmas message, which I think obviously is vitally important. But it's kind of fun today to kind of get into this and just chew on this from a different perspective, to see what was going on with Mary, to see what was going on with the shepherds. So continuing our study here through the book of Luke, let's study this. We're going to do verses 1 through 7. We'll talk about that, and then we'll do verses 8 through 20. So let's jump right into this, verse 1 of Luke chapter 2. It says, It came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went out to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. She brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the end. Now a little bit of background there. I like the history of the background. If you don't like the history of background, bear with me for just a minute or two. Verse 1, Caesar Augustus. This was the Roman emperor at the time. He ruled from about 27 B.C. to 14 A.D. And then we have Quirinius here mentioned in verse 2. He would have been the regional governor at that time. So Caesar is the Roman emperor. Quirinius is the regional governor. He ruled from about 4 B.C. to 1 A.D. So we can put a pretty good time frame on this. We're dealing with about, well, about 2012 years ago. Now, Let's talk about what's going on here. So Caesar Augustus wants all the world to be registered. He wants them all to be taxed. That's his mindset. Rome's a big empire. It costs money to run this empire. It costs money to have a standing army. So he's got this great idea. Let's tax everybody. So everybody needs to go back to their hometown to pay their taxes. That's the background that's going on here. Now, I want to talk about God's perfect timing, though, because look at verse 1. It came to pass in those days. Look at verse 6. So while it was there, there they, excuse me, while it was, they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. You see this timing happening. This is God's perfect timing for Mary to have Christ. This is God's perfect timing. Now, this may not be Mary's perfect timing. Now, think about this from a perspective. We've had five kids. Our last one was just born a couple months ago, so I remember what it was like to have the gal be nine months pregnant. I'm telling you right now, when Dawn was nine months pregnant, I said, hey, babe, jump on a donkey. we got to go to Bethlehem to go get taxed. She would not go. I'm telling you that right now. Think about this from the perspective of Mary. Mary, as we said before when we first started this out, is 15, 16 years old. It's her first kid. She doesn't know what's coming up. So even get past the point of this is her first kid. She's carrying God. What a burden. 
She's carrying the Lord. This is her first child. In her mind, she's probably thinking, okay, I'm going to surround myself with friends and family. Elizabeth just had her baby. She can come. And all these people are going to be around me. And then this is what will happen. No, instead, your betrothed husband says, get on the donkey. We have to go to Bethlehem. Why? Because we have to pay taxes. And then when you get there, you're paying your taxes. And she's probably thinking, just want to get back home. Nope. That's when she goes into labor. Okay, my wife's going to have a baby. Is there a place we can have a kid? Yeah, you have to go to the manger. Now, once again, I've seen the birth. Births of kids. It's a very messy ordeal. Here she is in a manger, a dirty manger. Every picture I ever see of Mary after having kids, she looks good. I mean, she looks really good. I think my wife's the most beautiful woman in the world. She has not looked that good after having kids. Mary looks clean and nice. Her hair is done up. She's got that little pretty blue robe on. She looks really good. This was not the way it was. She is in a manger with animals, 15, teenage girl, having her first child, with no one around to really help and support. This is what's going on right now. You know, we sing that song every Christmas, Silent Night, Holy Night. I don't think it was silent. I think there was a lot of screaming and moaning and groaning. This is what was going on. This is not Mary's perfect timing. Okay, we've already talked about this before a couple uh, studies ago, that if asked of Mary, would she have wanted to have the virgin birth right then? Oh, that wasn't her perfect timing, but in faith she said yes. She was obedient. Here right now, this is not what she wanted. And I don't mean to say, maybe she did, I don't know. But when you look at this picture, this gives you a totally different perspective. This is God's perfect timing, not Mary's perfect timing, which leads me to our first point. I may not like God's timing, but I trust it. See, how else was God going to get Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem? He needed to get them to Bethlehem. Why? Because Micah 5, verse 2, there was a prophecy given that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Now, could he have just sent another angel and said, Hey, Joseph, make sure when the water breaks, get Mary over to Bethlehem. He could have. But God in his perfect timing is always moving puzzle pieces around. So he has this secular, dare we say, heathen pagan emperor who just wants to raise money for his army and nation, so he's going to tax everybody, which then forces Joseph to take his nine-month pregnant wife on a donkey or mule or something to Bethlehem to have a baby in a manger, a dirty stable, and that's where the God of the universe is born. That's God's perfect timing. So if you're sitting here this morning and your life is falling apart, and you're like, Lord, is this really what you want? Yeah, it may be. Okay, well, why would the Lord allow this and this and this and this to happen in my life? Look at these first seven verses again. He allowed a lot of things to happen in Mary Joseph's life. Baby was born in Bethlehem, which fulfilled prophecy. My personal opinion in verse 7, Jesus being born in a manger, it's very important. This shows the accessibility we have to Christ. Born in the humble of all beginnings. You know, He wasn't born in a, on a throne. He wasn't born in a castle. He wasn't born in the emperor's room. He was born in this lowly, humble manger that shows the entrance into the world that his job was to come die on the cross for our sins. Humble beginnings, which makes us very easy to relate to him. So God's perfect timing. We may not like it, but we trust it. That sets the scene here. So we have the background of the timing Let's now introduce ourselves to the shepherds. Verse 8, now it says, Now they're in the same country, shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. And the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. There is more to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly... 
There was with the angels a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. So it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now, when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. Now, interesting thing. The first group of people that get to be told about the birth of the Messiah are the shepherds. I've always liked the shepherds thing. You know, growing up on a farm, uh, dad towards the end raised pigs, but the first thing he did was raise sheep. So we had the lambs. I always liked this idea of the shepherds. But from a biblical standpoint and perspective, shepherds were kind of down on the lower ladder of society. So it's really interesting that the shepherds would be the first one to be told about the birth because if God really wanted to make a splash, okay, let's ignore the fact that he was born in a manger, first person he should have told well, should have been the Roman emperor. Let's start at the top and work our way down. You ever realize that's not how the Lord works? He starts at the bottom and works his way up. That's why he's always done it. He calls fishermen to be the disciples and apostles. This is what he does. So he goes to the shepherds, the outcasts of society. He goes to those people that the world kind of rejects. He goes to those people that the world would kind of look down upon. That's what he goes to. It's kind of fascinating. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, you don't need to turn there, it gives a description of who God calls. Listen to this. It says, For you see your calling, brethren. This is who God calls. But not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. The debased things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. Here's the description that God thinks of you and I. Ready? It says right here, we're not wise, we're not mighty, we're not noble, we're foolish, we're shameful, we're weak, we're debased, and we're despised. Those are the adjectives that your loving Savior used to describe you. Now, the truth of the matter is, that's all completely true. And he still loves you and died on the cross for your sins. That's an amazing picture of grace and mercy. See, the next part of that verse says, the reason he did this is so that no flesh should glory in his presence. See, if the first people to hear about the birth would have been Rome, the emperor, well, right then and there we'd say, well, that's what God does. He goes to the cream of the crop first. He goes to the top. That's who he wants. And boy, look at me. I'm just some schmuck living out in northwest Ohio. How's he ever going to care about me? No, he goes to the despised, debased, foolish, weak, unnoble people. He says, you're the ones I want to tell about Jesus Christ. Amen. That's what the Lord does. So the shepherds, the low of society, are the first ones to hear. In fact, there's a great parable in Matthew 22 where in the parable it's a picture of God giving this feast and inviting everybody to come dine with him. And so they go out and send out all these invitations of all the bigwigs to come dine with him, and they reject it. So then the head of the feast says, go into the highways and byways and just start bringing people in. And that's exactly what the Lord does. He sends out the Spirit, and the Spirit just starts bringing people in. See, too often what we do is we have a tendency to reject but we look at socially as people that the world rejects. Those are the ones the Lord says you need to go show the love of Christ to more than anybody. Those are the ones that you need to go minister to, make a difference to. That's what we need to do. And that's a great picture here of the shepherds. Now note the order that happens here in the shepherds. Verse 10, first thing you see, well actually back up one thing. You know one of my little pet peeves. Verse 9, they see the angel and what's the response by seeing the angel in verse 9? They're greatly afraid. Always remember that. Anytime someone runs into a heavenly angel in the Bible, what's their first result? Afraid. This is a dramatic thing. This is a glimpse 
into heaven. So they're scared, they're afraid. Verse 10, what do you have here? You have the gospel presented very quickly, very nicely. Nice package, verse 10 and 11. Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people, for to there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. That is the gospel in two verses right there. Verse 10, it's great news, it's joy. Verse 11, it's born to you. This is personal. Your Savior is born. This is why we always use that phrase, personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It's been said so many times in so many ways, but one of my favorites is God has no grandkids. It's that idea of you personally have to come to know who Christ is. It doesn't matter what your grandma or what your parents did or your brother and sister do. It's you personally have to know who Christ is. Verse 11, it's born to you. So the gospel is presented to these shepherds in verses 10 and 11. Look at the title given there. This is who Jesus is. He is your Savior. He is Christ, your Messiah. He is the Lord. He is your God. Now, when you really stop and look at it from that perspective, what an amazing thing that is, that we have a personal relationship with God, the Messiah. It's amazing. It's just an absolute amazing thing. And it's fascinating. If you ever talk to anybody or read anything about people who was born to someone famous or knew someone famous in their life, from an outside perspective, we look at that and say, wow, you knew so-and-so. They look at it as, well, that's just who it was. See, stop for a second and look at this. You know God personally. You personally know Jesus Christ. It's a pretty amazing thing because he was born for you. So the gospel is presented in verses 10 and 11. And then what it comes out to is they have to then receive it. How do you receive the gospel? Verse 12. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes. So they tell them what the gospel is, verses 10 and 11. And then verse 12, they tell them how to receive the gospel. Okay, what's the next step? Verse 15, so it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass which the Lord has made known to us. So the gospel was presented to them in verse 10 and 11. Verse 12, this is how you receive it. Verse 15, they go get it. They, they, they go get the gospel. They just don't hear it, but they respond to it. And that's important because right now, all of us sitting here, we have verses 10 and 11. You have now heard the gospel. Jesus Christ died on the cross for you. You're a sinner, I'm a sinner, we're destined for hell, and our sins have to be taken care of. The only way our sins can be taken care of is through Christ, because God is perfect and holy, and he needs a perfect sacrifice, which is Jesus. You and I can't do anything good enough to earn salvation. That's the gospel. Verse 12, how do you receive it? By accepting the fact that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, not just with head knowledge, but with your heart, to say, I truly believe this, I accept this, I place my faith in this. Now, we're up to verse 15. Some of you just still just don't care. See, verse 15, the shepherds heard it. It was explained to them. Verse 15, now they go get it. That's important. When I first got saved, I was so excited about what the gospel was. I remember what I would try to tell anybody I could about Jesus. It didn't matter if they wanted to hear it or not. I would just shove it down their throat. That was my way of evangelizing. So, it always shocked me. When someone rejected, I distinctly remember to this day telling somebody about Christ, explaining it, the gospel message, and asking them, do you want it? And you know what their response was? No. I had no idea what to do. I could not fathom that somebody would not want this. I had no idea what to do. I didn't know what to say. So what happens, though, is a lot of us do verses 10, 11, and 12, but we get to verse 15, and we decide not to go to Bethlehem to get the gospel. Well, I'm glad that works for you. That's really nice. I'm glad that's good for you, and I'm glad that that's something that really touches you and impacts you, but it's really not 
for me. Oh, why not? Well, it's just not something that I, I really want. Wow. You know, sometimes you just don't know what to think about that. You just don't know what to think about people not wanting it. See, it goes back to verse 7. Why did Jesus have to be born in the manger? Well, it's a picture of the world not wanting the Savior. It's a picture of the world rejecting Christ. It just blows my mind. How could you not want God? Well, the truth of the matter is, some people don't want Jesus. If you could, please, please turn to Matthew 10 with me real quick. Matthew 10. The shepherds wanted him. They went, they followed. But sometimes we don't. Why doesn't the world want Christ? It's kind of fascinating because the world's not opposed to God. If I would just mention God, it'd be really ambiguous on mentioning God. I could get along with most any major religion in the world. And about the only people that would really be bothered would be atheists. I could get along with most everybody else. And that's why you see a lot of times in the world people just using these ambiguous terms of God. God loves you. No one really would argue with that. God cares for you. No one would really argue with that. God has an eternal home waiting for you. Most people wouldn't argue with that. Now, if I come to you and say, Jesus loves you. Jesus has an eternal home waiting for you. It's amazing how people start getting bothered by that. Just like Christ was rejected and the world didn't want him, he had to be born in a manger. Things still happen today. If you mention the name Jesus, people get bothered about that. And Christ knew this. Look at Matthew 10, verse 34. This is Christ speaking. Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. Now, you normally don't think about that passage with Christ. Now, we just got done studying Revelation a couple months ago. We know the whole sword-carrying Jesus thing. We know the whole second coming. And Christ is the returning king coming to retake the earth. But when we think of the first time Christ stepped foot on this earth as the baby, we don't think of him as the sword and division, etc. We think of him peaceful, carrying the little lamb on his shoulder and always smiling at everybody. That's what we think of. But Jesus himself knew. Look at verse 35. I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. That word love is an interesting word in this context. What it means is that idea of making precedent. Jesus says, I need to be number one. This is not because Christ has low self-esteem and he wants you to make sure that he's number one. He says, I need to be number one in your life because if you want an effective relationship with daughter, son, kids, mother-in-law, father-in-law, you put me first and everything else falls into place. It always fascinates me. I see a lot of people trying to rebuild relationships in their marriage, with their kids, or with relatives, and they try to do it in their own flesh. You cannot have a relationship with anybody unless it's based in Christ. That's the only way things can be rebuilt and, and taken care of. Christ says, you put me first, everything else falls into place. And he comes right out and says in verse 34, I bring division. Let's say you get excited about God. So your family is not really a church-going family, or maybe your family is a church-going family, but they really don't have the relationship with Jesus. You come back to them and just use terms like God. Guess what, Mom and Dad? What? I'm really close to God now. Oh, I'm really happy for you. Yeah, I really like God, and I really like church, and I really want you guys to know a little bit more about God. Well, maybe we'll go to church with you sometime, because God's really neat. Okay, most people accept that. You come back now and say, guess what, Mom and Dad? What? I've come to know Christ as my Lord and Savior. Totally different conversation. I want you guys to really know Jesus like I know Jesus. Well, honey, I'm really happy for you. I'm glad that works for you. But don't push that on us. Jesus brings division. For you guys that can remember when you first got saved, I'm willing to bet as soon as you started mentioning Christ and name-dropping Jesus, conversations were different. But if you would keep it ambiguous like God, you had friends and family, hey, that's cool, I'm glad you got God, that's, I'm happy for you. Christ brings division. That's why in the world today, as long as you just mention God, you'll be okay. 
As soon as you name drop Jesus, people start getting a little uncomfortable and they start squirming in their seats. The world wants to reject Christ. That's what they want. The shepherds were presented with Jesus. They responded in verse 15. A lot of times people don't. But isn't it fascinating? God goes to the lower realm of society. He also went to the upper end of society. We forget this. We know from the other gospel accounts that Herod knew about this too. Do you remember that? Herod knew what was going on. Herod knew what was going on so much, that's why he sent out and had all the young males killed. Because Herod knew the Messiah was born. Here's the difference. The shepherds are presented with the gospel of Jesus. The shepherds respond. They go to Bethlehem to meet Jesus personally. Herod is presented with the gospel of Jesus. What does Herod do? He sends the wise men and say, Hey, go check this out for me and let me know what you find out. Herod wouldn't leave the throne to go meet Jesus. I know lots of people that won't leave the little throne of their lives to go meet Christ. I'm happy for you. You go find Jesus. I'll even send somebody to go find Christ. But they personally won't get up off the throne of their life to go meet Christ. The shepherds obeyed and went, and they were blessed. They were the first ones to meet Messiah. They didn't just hear they responded. They responded. Stay here in the Gospels and just go to the book of Mark real quick. Real quick passage here. Mark, please. Mark chapter 1. Because here's the interesting thing about Christ. He will never force himself on anybody. Mark chapter 1, please. He wants you to want it. As you're going to Mark chapter 1, there's two passages in Matthew. Matthew uh, 20 verse uh, 16 and Matthew 22, 14. Matthew 20, 16 and Matthew 22, 14, where this phrase is repeated twice. Many are called, few are chosen. Many people get the invitation to come to Bethlehem to see the Messiah. Not many people choose to go do it. See, Christ sends out the calling, but do we respond? Look at Mark 1. Let's go ahead and uh, start here in verse 16. As he, meaning Jesus, and as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea. They were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. Now that's all we need to read. And you may say, why did you make me turn all the way here to read that? Because this is how simple it is. Verse 16, Jesus sees you. Verse 17, Jesus calls you. Verse 18, you respond. That's how simple it is. Look at verse 17. Follow me. I'll make you become fishers of men. Jesus doesn't try to push anything. He doesn't take them by the arm. He simply says to them, follow me. And verse 18 is key. They immediately left their nets and followed him. See, that is what we're talking about. Shepherds, gospel presented. They go to Bethlehem. They receive. They just don't hear. They respond. These guys right here, talking to them, Simon and Andrew, they hear. They respond. Herod, he hears. He doesn't respond. So now we have to ask ourselves, do we respond when the Lord calls us? And how do we respond? Verse 15 back in Luke chapter 2, it says that they responded and they made haste. One translation says they left in a hurry. That's pretty good. When Christ wants you, hurry up. And this is the neat thing. They don't only just respond. Look at verse 17. Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. They don't just respond. Now they go tell other people about him too. So verses 10 and 11, the gospel is presented to them. Verse 12, you're told how to receive the gospel. You'll find the baby. Verse 15, they go, they respond. Verse 17, now they want to tell everybody about him. See, we've been talking about this the last couple weeks on Wednesdays and Sundays. When we put up this little quote says, if you want to be able to share the gospel, you have to first personally know the gospel. When your heart, when your life is personally touched by Jesus, the result of that is you want to tell other people about him. You can't force somebody to tell people about Christ. I can't give you a pep talk to do it. 
It doesn't work that way. Your life is so touched by what God has done in your life, you can't but help tell other people, look what he's done for me. These shepherds were so touched by meeting the Messiah child. Verse 17, they had to go tell everybody about it. They didn't need someone to pull them aside now and say, hey, shepherds, your life just got changed by this child. I want you to go tell five people this week about it. They were so touched, they just did it. They just did it. They, they just impacted their lives that they said, I want to tell other people about this. And what was the result about it? Look at the result, verse 20. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. What's the result? Just joy. Praising God, glorifying God. It's just joy. See, here's the problem. The world and you and I all want verse 20. Just skip to the end. Give me the joy, Lord. Okay, well, if you want the joy, you've got to go back to verse 10 and 11 to understand what the gospel is. Verse 12, you have to know where the gospel is located in Christ. Verse 15, you have to respond to the gospel. Verse 17, then you tell people about the gospel. Verse 20, and then you got the joy of the gospel. See, a lot of us, I hope most of us here this morning, have experienced verse 15. You've gone and met Jesus. Now, you may have gone and met Jesus, but you still say, okay, where's this joy? Let me ask you this. Are you, are you doing verse 17? I know a lot of people that are born again and saved, no doubt about it but they're not really widely telling people about what Christ has done in their life. I'm telling you right now, if you really want to have the full impact of the gospel, you experience it personally and you tell other people about it. That's when verse 20 hits. That's when this joy really hits. I, I, I love my wife more than anything. I love my boys. And there has been a great joy when I got married. It's been a great joy when they've been born. But I'm telling you right now, there's amazing joy when I see somebody spiritually get it. I mean, when they get it, when they really understand it and get it, there's just a joy as you see those changes happen in their life. Because you realize this, is pers this person just went on a path destined to hell. They're now going to heaven for all of eternity. That's, that's eternity. That's life-changing. When you see a marriage falling apart and get fixed, you just realize, wow, instead of seeing kids based on a destructive path, now you see kids based on a path of edifying they have a great godly example. When you see somebody make good personal choices spiritually, you think, wow, instead of this person being a horrible example of destructive behavior, now they're an example of godly behavior. It's amazing the joy you have when verse 17 happens and you get to tell people about what the Lord does. See, the world wants verse 22. They want joy. But you know what the world won't do? They won't go to Bethlehem. They won't. You can tell them about Bethlehem. You can tell them that's where the answer is at. But they won't go Bethlehem. There's a great track that we handed out when we went door to door in Belmore. And if you got a chance to look at it, I, I believe it was called Six Miles. Don was telling me about it. And it was about the whole point about people not being willing to walk to Bethlehem to meet the Messiah themselves. And you stop and you really think about that. Wow. How many people do you know that you work with, maybe you live with, they know the gospel, verses 10 and 11. They know where he's at, verse 12. But they won't go to Bethlehem in verse 15. And then they come to you and say, why is my world falling apart? See, they want verse 20. They want the glorifying and the praising and the joy. They want that. They're not willing to walk to Bethlehem. What's the most you can do? The most you can do is just do verse 17. Let them know what Christ has done in your life. And just keep telling them this is where it's at. See, when I first took over as pastor, I thought it was my responsibility to get every single person saved, and to get every single person to church. Now, it's just my responsibility to point them towards Christ. That's what it comes down to. And how simple is that? One of my favorite verses in the Bible, it's in 2 Corinthians. It talks about the simplicity of Jesus. How simple is it? My job is just to point you towards Christ. And as I point you towards Christ, He saves you. You're born again through Him. The Holy Spirit indwells you through Him. It's all about Him. 
Our job is to point you towards him. And you see, this is exactly what the angels did. They pointed the shepherds towards the Messiah. And then the shepherds had to respond on their own. So here's the final things. We've talked a lot about the shepherds. Hearing the gospel, being told about the gospel, but then responding to it. And then telling others about it. And then walking in joy. Wow, that's what I want. We also talked about Mary. This was not Mary's perfect birth story, I don't think. This is not how she would have decided to have her first child. Some secular, heathen Roman emperor forcing her to go pay taxes and then having a baby in a manger all by herself. God's timing may not be our timing. We may not like it, but we trust it. And through the timing of God, prophecies fulfilled, Micah 5, 2, through the timing of God, we have this great birth story of Jesus coming in humble beginnings. Through the timing of God, it worked out perfectly. But we're looking back over 2,000 years. I'm telling you right now, some of you are sitting here this morning and you're not liking the timing of God right now. But as time moves on and you're able to look back, I hope that you're able to see the big picture to say, okay, Lord, I may not like what's happened, but I see why you allowed it for the bigger picture and the bigger reasoning. I encourage you to trust in the timing of God, even though it's a difficult thing to do. Marvin Kelly, if you guys want to come forward here for the final song. So we get to talk about Christmas in July in Luke chapter 2. And next week in verse 21, we get to see Jesus as a uh, young child and as a boy. And then we get to jump into Luke chapter 3 of John the Baptist and Jesus as adults. Wonderful, wonderful stories here. Let's just pray one more time as they get ready for the final song. Heavenly Father, we come to you. And Lord, we just want to pray that we trust your timing. Lord, your timing in our lives. Lord, help us to really trust that. And Lord, help us to go to Bethlehem to experience Jesus ourselves and to tell others about it and to walk in that joy of seeing how you change our lives, but you also change others' lives. And Lord, golf outing and just the VBS and church camp, all those things coming up, Lord, none of these things mean anything without you. We pray your hand be upon each one. And we say thank you, Lord. And we just lift this up in your name. Amen.